Welcome to the Glasgow Baptist Podcast, where each week we bring you the message from our Sunday morning worship service with Pastor Erdie Carter. We want to help you apply biblical truth to your daily life. I want to thank JJ for a wonderful job he did last week in finishing up chapter one. This week in chapter two, we're going to pick up there as Paul encourages uh, Titus to kind of establish what the healthy church should look like. The last few weeks, uh, Christianity Today, it's been about a month now, has been publishing a podcast that I've been listening to called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Um, it's, a, it's a story of a church in Seattle, Washington. And I've been listening to it uh, because for those of you who don't know the story of Mars Hill, Mars Hill started in 1996. It grew rapidly. In fact, it got to the point where, where it had on an average of 6,000 members, but on an average weekend it would see 13,000 people. It had 15 locations. Uh, but in, um, you know, it, it had explosive growth. In fact, the pastor, uh, at one time, they, they rented the Seattle Seahawks Stadium and had their services there, brought all the campuses together, filled the, the stadium, and shared the gospel. People all over the place came to know Christ. In fact, the, the latest episode was talking about they did a spontaneous service for, with, with baptism. And, and what that means was they were going to practice what the early church did in Acts that, that if you wanted to come to know Christ, they would, would invite you that day and baptize you that day. And they weren't sure how that was going because most, most, you know, Baptist churches, most, most evangelical churches want to, to have a conversation with you, make sure you clearly understand the gospel. They don't want you to to go through something and, and you miss the gospel, but they were just led to do that. And they did that. And, and they, they tell the story that on that particular day, they had to send people out multiple times to go and buy as many shorts and t-shirts that they could buy at local places because so many people were coming to be baptized that they did not have enough supplies, towels and shirts and t-shirts for people who needed those because of the baptism. In fact, one of the guys on the podcast was the worship leader and they had had the set uh, songs and, and, they, in their, and they were in the fifth service and, you know, he's playing through the set songs and, and he said, you know, I'm thinking, what's my next song? We've, we've played through everything we've got. I've, we've still got people coming, and they're waving at me, and I'm thinking, well, what, is this the last one? And, and they cl do the clip of the audio, and he goes, I think this is the last one. And then he goes, oh, no. He said, it was my six-year-old daughter. He said, she came that morning with my sister, and I stopped the service and quit playing, and I went and baptized my daughter that morning. The church grew and grew and grew. But after 18 years, in 2014, they had closed the doors permanently. A church that with rapid growth took off, closed as fast as it took off. 
The whole podcast is about what happened to the church. And the, the long and short of it is they took their eyes from God and put it upon, the pastor put it upon himself. There's a whole host of things of what took place and of how he, he led. And I, I remember the days uh, of his leadership and, and I, you, you know, I, I, I've listened to this podcast and, and while I never, he was just never one of those that I uh, thought, I, I just, I mean, I never was on his bandwagon, but I, I've listened and thought of how many people he was connected to that I was influenced by and I thought of how fast Satan can work and bring something down. As we come to Titus chapter 2, I think that's why Paul is writing to young Titus to say, the church has been established, but it's got to have godly leadership. And throughout chapter 1, we looked at that idea that, that Paul writes to Titus and said, listen, we've established the church, but you've got to find godly leadership. And, and he talked about that one. Two weeks ago, we had our deacons up here. We talked about godly leadership and we're grateful for those leaders in the church. But, but you as the body of Christ also have to be godly leaders practicing godly principles. And then last week, JJ came and reminded us that if you don't walk the walk and talk the talk, you're no good to the kingdom of God. And so this morning now, we see Paul then laying out what the healthy church looks like. And really as we look at the first 10 verses of chapter 2, we'll see what that healthy church looks like and how we should look as the body of Christ this morning. So if you have your Bibles and you're at chapter 2, would you stand as we read the first 10 verses? Beginning in verse 1, it says, Paul writes these to Titus and says, But you are to proclaim things consistent with sound teaching. We're going to camp on that verse for a long time today. But you are to proclaim things consistent with sound teaching. Older men are to be self-controlled, worthy of respect, sensible and sound in faith, love, and endurance. In the same way, older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders, not slave to excessive drinking. They are to teach what is good. So that they may encourage the younger women to love their husbands and to love their children. To be self-controlled, pure, workers at home, kind, and in submission to their husbands. So that God's word will, be, will not be slandered. In the same way, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything. Make yourself an example of good works with integrity and dignity in your teaching. Your message is to be sound beyond reproach so that any opponent will be ashamed because he doesn't have anything bad to say about us. 
Slaves are to submit to their masters in everything and to be well-pleasing, not talking back or stealing, but demonstrating utter faithfulness so that they may adorn the teaching of God our Savior in everything. Would you pray with me? God, I just pray today that you just give us ears to hear your word. And I pray that I would speak your word. And I pray you would be clearly heard today. For it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Here's the big idea I want you to catch this morning. It's real simple. Um, Healthy churches require a relentless pursuit of God's grace by all members so that the church can continue to proclaim the gospel consistently. Catch that. In fact, I, I, I want you to catch these four words in this sentence because they're important. Healthy churches require a relentless, catch that, relentless pursuit of God's grace by who? All members, not just staff, not just deacons, not just leaders, all members so that the church can continue to proclaim what? The gospel consistently. And we're going to unpack those four, four words. We find this, this concept here. And the church here in Crete was... A church that was so messed up, we said that every week. They had poor theology. They had all sorts of things going on. They lived in a time which men had no integrity. That, that they, they were liars. They, they were, the moral compass was terrible. Nothing was what it appeared to be. In fact, they, they lived in a culture that no one trusted anyone. Sound familiar? I mean, you could almost make the case that Crete is just like America is today. You could almost make the case that Crete is just like our community is today. Here in our own county, our own town. That there are people who cannot be trusted, who have no moral compass, who are always looking out for themselves, who are only looking at what they can get out of things. And so Paul is writing and telling Titus, we've got to change the community. In order to change the community, the church has to be healthy. If the church is healthy, it can change the community. But if the church doesn't, get healthy, it can never change the community. It only will follow the community. Because here's the truth. We live in a world in which Satan has has power, amen? We know that John tells us that Satan is the father of all lies. 2 Corinthians 11, uh, 14 tells us that, that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. 
And so that he's trying always to, to, to make something seem good so that we fall into these, these things. That we fall into these tricks. And so it's important for Paul when he writes to Titus to say, that you got to preach the gospel with consistency. And for us as a church, in order to be healthy, we have to continue to be consistent with the gospel. We cannot fall to the world that Satan has got his grips on. And so in order for us to do that, we have to do as what we learn from 1 Peter. 1 Peter 3.8 says, be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary who? The devil is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can what? Devour. Looking for anyone he can devour. So here's how the world, here's how the world does things. There's called this thing called packaging. And what Satan tries to do, he packages things that are bad and evil. And he packages them under the label uh, of, of good. And he makes us think that, that those things are, are good. He wants us to buy into these things and, the, and, and to make us think that these things are good. So catch this. He, he packages bad and evil things under good labels so that we will, we will buy into them and think they're good. Let me give you an example of this. An example of something that is good is women's rights. Right? I believe in women's rights. I think that women deserve rights. I think they're everything about rights. In fact, we read in the, we read Paul say, there is no Jew, no Greek, no slave, no male, no female. All are free because what? Because we are one in who? Christ. Women's rights. But under the label of women's rights, Satan has packed this evil thing called abortion. So if you are going to support women's right now in the world, that means you support this evil thing called abortions. We have to understand that's not biblical, right? We, don't, we can't agree with that. But see, how, how Satan has packaged that is but you agree with women's rights. And the world has says, but you, you want to agree with women's rights. And, and it's packaged with this. The psalmist tells us this. My inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I... I have been remarkably and wonderfully, what? Made. Your works are, what? Wondrous. And I know this well. 
My bones are not hidden from you when I was made in secret, when I was formed in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw me when I was formless. All the days were written in your book, planned before a single one of them began. So would you catch that? Here's how Satan works. He takes something good, something biblical, women's rights, and he packages it with something evil. And what the world wants to do is say, but you want to take this good thing and he packages it with this evil thing. And so now if you're going to agree with women's rights, you also have to agree with this. And the problem with that is we can't do that because it's against what scripture teaches that's how Satan works. And that's how the world moves us away from sound biblical teaching. There's another thing Satan will do. He'll take something that's good and godly and he'll put a bad label on it. And he'll put a bad label in it and packages it under something bad so that we cannot, so the world won't accept it. Let me give you give you a great example of this. We know what the Bible talks about marriage, right? We know how the Bible, Bible tells us that God made Adam and Eve. He performed the first marriage in the, in the garden. And some people go, well, you know, but Jesus never talks about that. But yet they miss the point that Jesus goes to the point of his first miracles is the first wedding ceremony in the, in the New Testament. We know that the Bible talks about gender roles, that God made man and woman. We, we know all about that. And yet, we talk about that, and yet, the world wants to make that a hate speech. Because if we only believe in a biblical marriage then we must be hate we must not love people so he takes something good and godly and they package it packages it under hate and so there's this thing that continues to happen in this world and we've seen packaging for a long time there's this new thing that's come out and you can, go, you can go look this up. There's this new thing that Satan is doing now. It's called choice architectural. Choice architecture. Choice architecture, I think I put the definition there for you. Choice architecture is simply this. is when someone uh, manipulates how when two choices, when two choices are presented, leading you to the desired conclusion. When you have two choices put in front of you, but the two choices lead you to what they want you to pick. Let me give you the example. You're for women's rights, right? Or are you anti-choice? Well, you, there's a no win there, right? Because if you go to women's rights, you have to support abortion. If you say, well, no, then you're anti-choice. That means you're, you're this. See, that's how choice architects works. And so 
We live in a culture that doesn't let us, or is working against us, let's should say it this way, we're working against us in our faith and our beliefs. So when Paul writes to Titus and says, you've got to teach sound doctrine, he's writing that because there is this, this understanding that the church must be relentless in their faith because if they're not relentless, they're going to fall to Satan and his plans. And guess what, folks? The same is true for to us today. If we're not relentless in standing up for our faith, not ugly, not standing on a street corner with a bullhorn, but being relentless for saying, no, 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 that's not what I believe. Relentless for saying, no, 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 that's not how marriage is. No, 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 that's not what I believe. And going and dealing with what we believe, Satan will always win. Because we either have the choice to say, no, that's not my viewpoint. And, and choice architecture, you can go, well, I, I don't like those two arguments. I, I get it. You, you can argue with me all day long. But the way, the way the system works and the way Satan has set it up was you only get one of those two arguments. You don't get, the, you don't get number C, none of the above. You get to pick one of those two. If you ever watch these surveys they send out or take these phone polls, they don't give you another option. It's just one of those two. And they do that for a reason because they're pointing you to be able to make one of those two choices. And so Paul is reminding Titus, you've got to be relentless. And for you and I today, that relentless is still what we need to be about. We know that we are called to live out our faith. Matthew's gospel tells us that they'll be known by their fruit. The question is, what's our fruit look like these days? We like the verse that says, they'll know us by our love. But in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus tells the disciples, you'll know them by their fruit. What's the fruit you're producing in your life right now? What do people see coming out of you? What fruit are you producing? Are you producing good fruit or is it dried up and nobody's wanting to eat what you've got? If it's dried up and not worth eating, then there's your answer why the church is failing. And so we get to the verses 2 through 10. Paul begins to tell Titus how the church should look. And it's all about a grace-driven. It's all about what grace ought to look like. Now, like grace has a couple of terms it's undeserved favor we know Ephesians tells us for you have been saved by what church grace through faith but this is not up from yourself it's what it's a it's God's gift not that any not from any works so that no one can 
boast. So, so it's not anything you did. It's not anything I did. Because if I do it, I can say, look what I've done. But grace can't be anything that I've done. Unmerited favor. It's what God did. But grace is also the power of godly living. And we see that in 2 Corinthians 9. It says, and God is able to make every grace overflow to you so that in every way, always having everything what? You need, you may excel in every good work. So, Paul says, so the grace that God has, the grace that God gives you, is so that you can have what you need for good works. That you can do what he's called you to do. And so in verses 2 through 10, Paul sets up and says to Titus, here's what we have to do in this, in this community of, of liars, in this community of people who cannot be trusted, and, and this drunkard, and this sexual immorality community. Here's what has to happen. He begins by, by beginning to say these older men who've, who've been around a little while, they, they, they've got to, to live with some, some love and perseverance and faith. In fact, in all of them, there's this sensibility and, and this understanding that they've got to, to live a life of worthiness. And, and he says that in a variety of different ways through all, all four people or all four categories. That they all have to live a, a, a lifestyle worth living. They've got to all live a, a, a understanding life worthy of the gospel. But then he kind of gives some instructions. And so these older men are, are to, to, to live these life of perseverance, faith, and love. In other words, they're, they're to, they're to kind of be the men who are investing and, and leading Men who've walked down paths, who've, who've, who've been there and who can help. The young men, I'll, I'll, I'll get to the ladies in a second. The young men. The young men are to, to be men of integrity. They're to live their life in such a way that, that nobody can bring an accusation against them. In a culture that, that the business dealings were not always was good. Remember, Zeus was their god, and they, they lo- loved to tell stories about Zeus and how Zeus would do underhanded things and trick people and, and do things. And that's kind of how they operated their community. That's how they, they, they that was kind of their understanding of how things were done. But that's not how you do. Because remember, in, in chapter 1, Paul would say, our God is a God who cannot lie. You are to be people of integrity. Add. 
No one who can find fault against you. Those will be the, those will be the traits of the men. And then we get to the women. And, and when we read these passages of, with the women, we get so, some, sometimes we get, some people get so worked up when we read these because in our Western culture, we just don't understand these verses. Because in our Western culture, they, they submit, love, housekeeping. We get so worked up. But here's the, here's the kicker. We don't understand because in our Western culture, we don't catch how a marriage worked. In our Western culture, you married because you fell in love. You remember that moment? You, you, you remember when you fell in love? You remember the, Joel, you remember when you laid eyes on her, your all's anniversary, you just, you do remember that far back, right, Joel? He's grinning. I think he does. We, Barbara, you know, we all remarked we couldn't believe you put up with him that long. But you know, you'll get an extra jewel in your crown in heaven. But you fell in love. In this culture, there was no falling in love. It was a business deal. Two men made a business deal, and the and the girl went because her daddy made a deal with another man. There wasn't any love. She was paid for. She became his wife. And you go, well, that was wrong. How dare them? That was the norm. That was how her mother did it. Her mother's mother did it. That's how things happened. Read your Old Testament. And so when Paul writes, he's encouraging them Hey, listen, learn to find love. Look to love. And listen, he was telling the men to love all along. Remember, he told the men to love your wives as Christ loved the church. How does Christ love the church? He died for the church. No greater love than anyone could have. And so he was teaching this principle. Older women in this culture, they'd get to a point where they hadn't had love. As they'd get older, they became drunks and slanders, alcoholics and just town gossips. Paul said, let's, let's not let that be the case anymore. Let's, let's change culture. Let's put God first. Let's not let our circumstances dictate how we live. Let's let God determine how we live. That's what the gospel does. That's what grace-driven churches do. Grace-driven churches determine that, that because of God's great love for us, because God loves us so much, 
because we are so unworthy of the gospel? And because the gospel gives us the power to overcome our, our situations, maybe not overcome the past in the sense of we'll never be able to forget about some things. We'll never, we'll never be able to, to outlive some things. But the gospel gets us, the grace of Christ gets us to move past. We're going to live with the grace of God rather than dwell on the the past. One of the things about one of the things about Mars Hill was they got so consumed so far in, in this four week series I'm listening to. Mark Driscoll got so consumed with with the things of this world. And how he wanted the church to act and behave. That he began to dictate how that would look. To the point that he made a blog post of a, by another name to create arguments in the church so that there was conflict. Friends, the conflict is with the world outside. In here, grace ought to be driving us. Where we look past our shortcomings, where, where we're looking for opportunities to mentor, to challenge, to encourage, to lift up, to build up the kingdom of God. Last weekend, as I told you, J.J. preached for me, and I appreciated that. Drew and I had run off to Texas, and uh, I, uh, I had a chance to take Drew to Promise Keepers. Uh, back in the mid-90s, Promise Keepers had taken off under Bill McCarthy, the Colorado football coach. And Promise Keepers, at one point in my life, was a significant uh, ministry that impacted my life. Um, I was called to, 1996, I was called to ministry at Promise Keepers in, in Atlanta. Uh, I can still remember, I can still remember that call to ministry very clearly. Uh, they'd, they'd stopped uh, for a variety of reasons. I don't, I don't even know the whole reasons, but this was the first time they were going to start that back up. And you want to talk about, you want to talk about how Satan wants to take something good and package it bad. Um, promise keepers good, trying to call men to act like men, godly men. The world wants to say, you're bigots, you suppress women. Uh, in fact, right before you leave, there's a USA Today article trying to shut it down. That why would you, you know, because we were at the, we were at the AT&T Stadium, the Dallas Cowboys. Why would they let us be in that stadium, America's football team? Why would you let this group of people come into the stadium? But um, anyway, was, we we were there. But one of my most fond, one of my favorite memories 
of Promise Keepers was, um, you know, sometime around 2000, uh, I, uh, I took a group of men from my home church to Memphis. And we were in the uh, stadium there. It was an outdoor stadium. And uh, with us, uh, two men who were grandfathers. And um, they brought their grandsons. And then um, in that stadium that day, uh, there were nearly 80,000 men there. And I, I can tell you, you get 80,000 men together singing, it's, it's a powerful moment. And, and that particular event, they took the students, anybody who was 18 and younger, they took them to an event that morning outside the stadium. They, they had a tent set up for them. And at one moment in the event, uh, it was right before lunch, they, they brought the, the students back into the, uh, to the arena. And they brought them through the end zone. And so you can imagine the, where the team runs out, they open the door, and they, they release these teenagers. And they ran onto that football stadium as hard as they could run. And I stood there and watched these two grandfathers with tears running down their eyes. Both these men had invested much into their grandchildren. Their fathers were not as heavily involved spiritually in their, their grandchildren's lives. Other men were. But for the first time, I watched two, two grandfathers just tears rolling down their eyes to watch their grandsons run into that stadium and just think about what he was doing in their life. Those boys made their way back up to us in the stadium, and I, I still can see in my mind those two boys embracing their grandfathers. And it reminds me every day what the picture of the church ought to be. How, how each generation is supposed to be passing on to the next generation. A working, of passing the faith, the mantle of faith, moving to the next generation. From the older to the, to the next. And, it, and if we continue to relentlessly hold to the gospel and keep moving with a relentless passion, that consistency of the gospel, the church will always stand firm. And yes, I get it. God wins in the end. I've read the end of the book. I promise God's going to win. But the question is, who's going to be left out because And so this morning, chances are you're here and, and you've got a salvation and you know that Christ died for your sins and that you know that you're going to spend eternity with, heaven, with God in heaven. And if that's you today, praise the Lord. If you don't know that, then in just a few minutes, I'd love to have that conversation with you to tell you that Jesus loves you. But most of you sitting in this room, I would venture to guess, believe that, have been baptized, have 
have come to faith in Christ, the question I have for you is, what is your fruit telling the world today? And are you passing it on, and what does it look like? Is it dried up, or is it something that people want? If Jesus was to return today, would he say, well done, thy good and faithful servant, or why did you let them leave? Why didn't you tell them? I put them as your neighbor, their co-workers. They sat across you at the desk. You rode in the car with them for six hours. Why didn't you speak up? What would he say? Do we have a relentless passion? Would you stand with me this morning?